0: Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now, therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the people of Gideon, then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. He shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you. He shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, goeth Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went down with Pura, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites... And all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts and their camels were without number as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend and he said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell down and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. It came about when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation that he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them, with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet... Then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing and cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place all around the camp and all the army ran crying as they fled. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shaita toward toward as far as the edge of Abel Mehulah by Tabith. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning.
1: We are in a sermon series going through the book of Judges to learn how to live faithfully in a pluralistic world. Judges describes the challenges that Israel faced um, after entering the promised land. Um, But Judges also tells the story of God's constant and continual faithfulness you know, today's, today's passage is an amazing example of that. I'm glad that I got this passage. Um, so this is what's going on. So the Midianites are oppressing Israel and God tells Gideon to cut down his army by 99% before attacking. And then God gives a supernatural assurance to Gideon, who's still afraid um, that the Gideon will prevail. So Gideon attacks, Midian flees. And Israel has victory. And Gideon's story is the central or the pivotal story in the book of Judges. So you might remember a few weeks ago we talked about this, this structure where like the central thing is the key. So Gideon is right in the center. Um, and it's also his story is the longest of all the judges. There's the most detail there. Uh, so a lot of people think, oh, that means Gideon is the greatest judge. Um, but we'll see, you know, Bryce has the, the pleasure of, of showing us that that's not true. Um, And, you know, like Deborah, for example, was a much better judge in a lot of ways. Um, In Gideon's story, we see the first anti-judge who rises up not to save Israel, but to destroy it. Um, So if anything, Gideon is the turning point from great judges to something else. So Gideon's centrality does not mean he's the greatest judge, but it means that the themes that we see Really unpacked in Gideon are the ones that we really need to take heart They're fundamental truths about God's faithfulness and how God saves us So as we unpack this passage, we're going to learn four things God's victory through weakness Our spiritual danger God's risky encouragement And God's powerless enemies So victory through weakness, spiritual danger, risky encouragement, and powerless enemies um, first, let me pray. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to um, receive your word for us, Lord. Be glorified um, and exalt yourself in, in our hearts, our minds, our, lo- our our lives, our church, and in our region. In Jesus' we pray, amen. So first, victory through weakness. We see that God works through our weakness, not despite it. How do we see that here? Well, this can be a pretty misunderstood passage. So, right, Gideon's army starts with 32,000, and it gets cut down to 10,000, and then to 300. And I think we love to say, to ask, what is it about those 300? Right? We think there must be a reason God chose those 300. Right, because the first 22,000 to leave, well, they were scared. So, you know, we... Makes sense. Get rid of the cowards, right? Um, But what is it about lapping water to drink, right? Maybe, so people love to speculate, right? They must have been braver. They were better warriors. or You know what? When they bent down, it must have been that they had one hand on their sword ready for battle or something, right? But we don't have to speculate because God tells us. In verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And again in verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. If the point was that these 300 were braver, better soldiers, there is absolutely no indication of that in this entire chapter. These 300 don't achieve victory by being great soldiers. They don't really fight. They just make a bunch of noise. No. God cut down Israel so that Israel would not boast. So that Israel would not say, my own hand has saved me. We have saved ourselves. So why these 300? Well, because they're only 300. They're an impossibly small number that could never possibly defeat the Midianites on their own. The Midianites, right? This is what it says. The Midianites... And the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Right. God chose a puny army of 300 to set up an impossible match against an army like locusts in abundance. God didn't say, oh, no, Israel only has 300 worthy soldiers. 300 who only, only 300 who know the right way to drink water. You know, I'll have to do something supernatural in this case. No, God says, Israel has been brought very low because of Midian. Israel is very weak. And Israel is facing an army abundant like locusts with camels like the sand on the seashore. I will save them through their weakness, not despite it. God will save them through their weakness so that they will not mistake who saved them. 32,000 or 10,000, they aren't weak enough yet. Now, a lot of you are really struggling and you feel like you're drowning. For example, you might be overwhelmed taking care of aging parents and also your spouse and also your children And, you know, maybe you're juggling more than you can handle and you feel like at some point the whole thing is going to come tumbling down, right? Or the bills are just barely getting paid or they aren't getting paid, but work isn't picking up and there are challenges at the office, right? Or you're trying to manage your studies, but work is piling up. The exam scores aren't quite what you want them to be. And you don't know where the time in the day is going to come from. Plus you have internship applications and Everybody else is totally on top of things. Or we're struggling with trauma from our past and, you know, reminders are just overwhelming and we we carry emotions we don't know what to do with. Or we're dealing with, you know, whatever it is. And we want help. and We don't know what to do. Well, I can't tell you how, but I can tell you God can work through your weakness. God isn't punishing you and God hasn't abandoned you, if you feel utterly helpless and weak, you might be right where God wants you. Because God works through our weakness. And you know, I think a lot of us, we hear that and we say, we want to know, okay, how? But I suspect even more than that, our hearts cry out, why? Why, God? Well, here's why. Second point. God works through our weakness because our greatest spiritual danger is believing that we can save ourselves. God told Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. God had to cut down the army by 99%. Because otherwise, Israel would definitely boast. Why? Because our greatest spiritual danger is believing we can save ourselves. Unless there's absolutely no doubt that only God could have done it, Israel would have turned around and taken the credit. Bryce will let you know how that went. What's amazing, I mean, shocking, is that in chapters 4 and 5, we see Deborah and Barak defeat, have this impossible victory against 900 chariots with an army of 10,000. Right. I don't know if you remember, but their victory required this supernatural flood in order to win. And Deborah and Barak sing about how God deserved all the glory. Ten thousand against nine hundred chariots, plus all the people. Deborah and Barak's victory. Right. But now God says ten thousand is too big. With ten thousand, Israel will boast. Ten thousand was impossible. 10,000 is impossible, but 10,000 is too big. They aren't weak enough with 10,000 because their hearts, like ours, are desperately sick. Right? The human heart hates the idea that we need a Savior, utterly and completely. You know, and A lot of us here sitting in church, we're, we're quick to say, yes, I need a Savior, amen. But you know, then we forget what a Savior means. Right? We might say, God forgave my sins. Yeah, nobody could do that but God. But I've worked hard to be a good person. I deserve credit for that. God forgave me. Yeah, God did that. But I put my faith in him. I trust him. I thank him. I'm the kind of guy that God would forgive. I'm the kind of person that God would forgive. And now I deserve blessings, too, because I'm very faithful. You know, not like those people who reject God. Look at how they live. They don't honor God. They don't give thanks. But I I mean, trying to make the point. Right. But do you realize what we're doing? We are boasting in ourselves. We would never say it that way. Right. But I trust God. I thank God. I deserve blessings. We're boasting in ourselves when we do that. We act as if sure, God forgave us. But now he needs to bless us because, you know, after all, I do trust and obey him. We've pulled ourselves together. We live moral lives. We obey. And just to be clear, amen. Put your faith in Jesus. You must do that to be saved. Obey. Live moral lives, please. But never forget that God alone brought you from death to life. In Ephesians, Paul says that before we become Christians, we are dead in our sins. Dead, right? Spiritually dead. And guess what? Dead things don't contribute much to their salvation, right? An army of dead soldiers isn't going to win a lot of battles. Spiritually dead sinners cannot boast in our own virtue, our own goodness. Spiritually dead sinners aren't more humble than other spiritually dead sinners. We don't show more honor to God than other spiritually dead sinners. Spiritually dead sinners need to be made alive, And when you go from death to life, you know that something has changed in you. Paul also says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of result of works, so that no one may boast. Being a Christian means you know that God saved you. God made you alive when you were dead. You have nothing to boast about. God tells Gideon, they need to be weak enough so that Israel won't boast. And Paul tells us that we were saved by grace so that we won't boast. Because our greatest spiritual danger is to boast in ourselves. Our greatest spiritual danger is to say, this is why God saved me. This is why God owes me. It's like saying, God saved me because I lap at the water to drink. Now, do you know why God saved you? to demonstrate his mercy and his goodness. God is glorifying and bringing life to dead sinners. He breathes on spiritually dead bones to demonstrate the glory of a God who gives life to the dead. If you're a Christian, God chose to save you because God chooses the weak things in the world. If God has taken your dead bones and breathed his spirit, over you, it's so that you and the world will see that he's using an army of 300 to defeat locusts like sand on the seashore. If you're a Christian, your my perspective had better be, I need to be the most humble person in the world, because I know the only reason God saved me is because I'm weak. God saved you when you were dead, not when you were strong. If you look down on people, or if you think you deserve something out of life, then you don't know what it means that you are spiritually dead. And if you aren't a Christian, I want you to know God's salvation by grace is the best news in the world for you. Because, you know, you probably think, I need to do something to earn salvation. Whatever that means, whatever religion, whatever worldview you hold to, you believe— I have to be observant enough. I have to be good enough or moral enough. I need to do enough good in the world for my life to matter. Or I have to believe just right. There's something that we have to do. But so many of us, when we're honest, we know we can't handle that burden. Right? We look at ourselves and deep in the recesses of our heart, when we let our guard down, we see I'm crippled with anxiety. I'm crippled with self-loathing and hatred and remorse. I'm crippled with guilt. But, you know, we stuff it down. We can't let anybody know. But, you know, maybe I can do something to make up for it. Or maybe you look and you say, no, I I got it together. I am good enough. I do deserve good things. I am better than other people. You might be. um, But if this is your view, you'll become arrogant and domineering. And, uh, you know, just wait a while. Eventually you'll stumble. And then what will you boast in? Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God can free you from this spiritual danger. Whether you think too much of yourself or you're crippled and overwhelmed by guilt and anxiety, God wants to set you free. As long as you keep believing that you can save yourself, somehow you're never going to be free of that deep, crippling sense that you're not what you meant to be. Because you're not what you're meant to be. God's free gift is that in Jesus Christ, God can breathe life into our dead bones. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. But most of us, we don't even have that. Right? We think we just need a boost. That's all. Do you just want a little boost? Or do you want life to come over your dead bones? A real change in your life. And this is why God works through our weakness, not just despite it. Because if our greatest danger is believing we can save ourselves, then God's great mercy is to act through our weakness so that we can see his strength and utter dependence on him. Our greatest need is to see our utter dependence on God. And God works through weakness to protect us from our desire to boast. God doesn't look at Israel's weakness and wonder, what is he going to do this time? God chose to save Israel through weakness. And if you're feeling weak and overwhelmed, God can save you through it. A few months ago, I was struggling with some things, and I was feeling overwhelmed and disappointed and pretty hopeless. And uh, at one point, I was driving driving my car on Route 2, um, and random song comes on the radio, and I just broke down crying. Yeah, I'm driving. Inexplicably, no reason. it wasn't even like a sad song or anything, it was just... You know, And so I'm just bawling while driving the car. So I start praying. I'm like, God, what are you doing? When are you going to do something here? God, I thought you said your strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm feeling pretty weak here. Right? And I think a lot of us know that passage in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So there I am in the car feeling really weak and really wanting God's strength. And suddenly I hear God's answer. You know, I hear it not in my ears, but in my head. But it was it was definitely God's voice, not mine, because it said you aren't weak enough yet. I hear God tell me, oh, you're right. My strength is made perfect in weakness, but. You aren't weak enough yet. And that's not usually the word we want to hear from God. Right? What do you do with that? How do you try to make yourself more weak? Right? If you feel like, God, you know, what I really need is more help. I need a boost. I need resources. I need money for this. I need somebody to come alongside. Maybe God is keeping you weak for a reason. Maybe God wants you to see that your greatest need is for him. Maybe God knows that if he just gives you a boost, you'll think to yourself, look what I've done with just a little help. God can and often does and often will provide the resources we need. But if God knows that we're going to turn and take credit and say, Ugh, oh, my arm has saved me, then God graciously withholds. Right To be clear, if, if this is you, I'm not blaming you. I'm not saying, oh, God would help you if you weren't so proud. Right? I mean, that's true for me. Um, but God always knows what we need, and God gives us what we need graciously, mercifully. Right? Maybe you need to be cut down to 300. Maybe you're already at 300. And God's going to do something with you where you are. So if you're floundering, keep crying out to God who saves through weakness. So you've seen victory through weakness and spiritual danger. So third, risking encouragement. So let's return to the passage. God told Gideon that his army of 300 would triumph over the Midianites. And then he says, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Gideon has repeatedly sought signs from God, and he's gotten them, right? Burning up an offering right in front of him, making a fleece wet, making a fleece dry. God knows that Gideon is fearful. God knows what Gideon is made of, and he still says, Gideon, have courage. But God also says, I know you need more encouragement, right? And I'll give it to you. If you're afraid to go down, go down. If you think, you know, I can't let God know I'm afraid. I have to pretend like I've got it together. All right, if I really let my guard down with God, he'd be angry with me. You have no idea of the compassion and mercy of the Lord. God offers strength to Gideon before Gideon asks. God knows what Gideon needs and he knows what you need. But also notice, right, Gideon is speaking to the Lord personally, audibly, like in real life. And Gideon is still afraid. He still seeks more confirmation. And, you know, I think all of us, we look at this, we think, God, couldn't you just like do some miraculous sign right in front of him? Like God is speaking to him right now. Like call down fire from heaven. And I mean, yeah, of course, God could. I mean, you know, a few chapters earlier, he did do that. Um, but God says, Gideon, if you want to be encouraged, you need to take a risk. If you're afraid to go down, then go down. You need to go down to the tent, go to the danger and there you will be strengthened. And so Gideon goes because, you know, he's no dummy. He's like, yeah, I'm afraid. You told me to go down. If I'm afraid, I'm afraid. So he goes down and then there's this crazy dream, Right. He overhears one of the soldiers say, I dreamt that a cake of barley came and flattened our tents. And the other soldier says, that's none other than the sword of Gideon. Obviously, right? Duh, of course. Like you read the, you hear that dream. And you're like, that's obvious, right? Who of us concluded that? By the way, that's kind of how dreams work, apparently. Like, it's not like, oh, a loaf is going to come hit us. No, the soldier knows. God has given the Midianite army into the hands of Gideon. So Gideon learns that despite their numbers and power, right, the Midianites tremble because they know that God has given them into Gideon's hands. This is what God has been trying to say all along, by the way. And when he hears it, he falls down and he worships. This is what Gideon needed to hear. And he responds. He worships God. The Midianites tremble. Gideon knows he has an army of 300, but it doesn't matter. The Midianites tremble. God gives Gideon the encouragement he needs, but first he asks Gideon to take a risk. If you're afraid to go down, then go down. You know, for Gideon and for us, God grants us assurance of what he's always promised, but... We might have to take a risk to get that encouragement. So do you need strength and encouragement to believe God's promises? If you're afraid to go down, then go down. For most of us, it could look like one of two things. You know, first, you might already know what God wants you to do, right? You might know God has been calling you to get more involved in church or share the gospel with this person or to offer to pray for this friend or to serve more sacrificially right? Maybe you need to forgive this person. Maybe you need to live your faith more boldly. Maybe, you know, you might already know what God is calling you to do. Well, take that first step in faith. Somewhere along the way, God will assure you of his promises. Take the risk. If God has called you to do something, he'll give you what you need to do it, which caveat might mean more weakness, but he'll give you what you need. And here's a big risk, second, that all of us are called to. Die to yourself. Jesus tells us repeatedly to die to ourselves daily. Put others before ourselves. Seek others' needs before our own. Right? Serve without expecting anything in return. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive your enemies. Right? This, in case it's not obvious, is not natural. This is not the way we naturally go around living our lives. There's a big risk that if you forgive, you'll be burned or the pain will return. If you serve, you won't be appreciated. If you give, you'll be taken from. Everything in our minds, hearts and bodies militates against doing this. If we die to ourselves, frankly, what's in it for us? We're dying here. But Jesus promises us, seek first his kingdom and everything else you need, he'll take care of. Obey in all the little things, all the little ways we're called to die to ourself, all the ways that don't make sense, but that Jesus says all those ways are the way of the kingdom and every seed you sow will bear fruit 30, 60, a hundredfold. If you take the risk and obey Jesus, it's risky. You might feel like a fool. You might be a fool. If you put others first, who's going to take care of you? But Jesus will strengthen you. He will encourage you. Maybe not always when or how you expect, but he will. If you're afraid to go down, go down. God promises that the way to have life is to lay down your life. And I'll also add, if there's sin that you're struggling with, I don't even know what this means, but if there's a risk you need to take in your your struggle with sin, take that risk. Go that next step. So we've seen victory through weakness, our spiritual danger, God's encouragement and risk taking, and finally powerless enemies. We see here that God's enemies are not as strong as they appear. Right? Already the Midianites tremble at Gideon's sword. They're a mess. They're like locusts in abundance, without number, but they're terrified. And when Gideon attacks, all that Gideon's army needs to do is, like, make a bunch of noise and smash lanterns. And then all of a sudden, the Midianite just army, they just descend into utter chaos, right? They're sent, like, literally, like, they start fighting themselves because of all the noise, right? They're sent fleeing for their lives before the 300 even attack. You know, we may feel powerless against the enemies of the world or, or the challenges that we face. And, you know, what? indeed, we should, right? But God is with us. It's true that the Midianite army was, humanly speaking, much more powerful. But if God is going to throw them into chaos, their human strength is meaningless. God sets their own sword against themselves and they become easy targets like shooting fish in a barrel. Whatever enemy you're facing, whatever challenge seems overwhelming in your life, if God is with you, the opposition ultimately is powerless. And You know, now you might be rightfully skeptical. You know, you say, this is a nice story, Greg, but be realistic. Enemies don't always turn their swords on themselves. Giants don't always come crashing down. Frogs don't become princes. You don't know what I'm dealing with. And if you feel that way, I don't think you know what Christianity promises. Because we can trust God no matter what. God gives us a promise that we can hold fast to no matter what. Why? We can trust God to overcome because he is overcome at the cross and at the grave. Jesus defeated sin and death through weakness. Right? Jesus left heaven and came to earth right, as a baby in complete and utter weakness and dependence. And the singular mission of his life was to be betrayed by his friends, to be stripped of all his possessions, and to have his hands and feet tied so that he had no control, right? Jesus took on weakness, and in his weakness, Jesus went to the cross, not taking a risk, but knowing with certainty that it would cost him his life. And through dying, right, the ultimate act of weakness Jesus defeated far greater enemies than armies like locusts. Jesus defeated death itself. Death no longer has any hold over Jesus. And if you belong to him, death has no hold over you. Yes, everything in your life could fall apart. All the balls you're juggling could fall. Your relationships could fall apart. Your health could give way. The world may become more unjust. But the promise of the cross is that God will never leave you will never leave his, his creation. Even death cannot hold you anymore. Death has no victory over you. And one day, righteousness and justice will reign. The greatest enemy, death, has been defeated. Death, death isn't as powerful as we thought. Death can't hold the risen Savior. When we forget what Jesus has done and what he promises to continue to do and to ultimately do, we forget what victory we live in. Even when our weakness feels overwhelming, even when we aren't weak enough yet. But God's faithfulness means that he will reassure us. God promises that when we forget what God has done, his Holy Spirit will remind us. Though we we may need to step out first to get that comfort. God's Spirit will comfort and encourage us, but we might need to step out in faith, trusting, believing, and obeying. Our enemies are not as powerful as we think And God's promises are more sure than we could ever hope for. Let's pray. God, we thank you that our hope rests in your promises and what you have done. We thank you for your um, steadfast love for us throughout the generations and in our life. God, make your promises more real to us. God, send us down to where we are afraid to go, knowing that you are with us. God, that we would see your great victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.